today we come to the end of our study of the book of Philippians. If you have a Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 4. This study we've called Joyful Fellowship. As you go through the book of Philippians, it's about joy. Not only about joy, but joy is a dominant theme. Rejoice in the Lord, Paul says, as we looked at last week. And again, I say rejoice. But it's also about the fellowship that we have, the partnership, uh, the sharing together. uh, That first of all, we have with the Lord. That, that we are, are fellowship, we're in fellowship with God. We are sharing in the life of God by faith in Christ. But then we also share in it together, that we're in the fellowship of the gospel, that we participate and share in the work that God has called us to do in this world. So I've really enjoyed going through this book of the Bible. Today we're going to cover chapter 4, verse 10 through 23, as we close out uh, this book of the Bible um, in our study through it. And I hope that it's encouraged you and, and blessed you. I've never been a part of a, of a very wealthy family or a rich family. Uh, growing up, though, I, it did seem like we were able to live somewhat comfortably. I never felt like we were poor or extraordinarily rich. Uh, but I, I don't remember as a kid, for the most part, worrying about money, though. Um, I remember it seemed like, you know, we were able to, to you know, pay our bills from what I could see, you know, as a kid, you know, you don't know any of that stuff, but it just never seemed to be like a crisis financially for us. Um, but I do remember uh, the first time I really started to worry about money, the first time I really started to worry about our family. Um, for the first time, when I was a freshman in high school, uh, our family went through a real financial crisis. Uh, my dad ended up having to, to find new work, and, uh, and our family was in a difficult situation. Uh, we were actually trying to figure out for the first time that I could see, you know, how we were going to pay the bills, how we were going to, what the future was going to look like for the first time really seemed uncertain for us. Um, where were we going to live? Uh, we ended up having to move where we were at and find a different place to live, and just our whole situation different. It was really the first time I felt, I know we had had needs before that, but it just seemed like that was the first time I really felt as if we were the ones in need. And I wonder, do you know what it's like to go through times of really being in need? The Apostle Paul certainly did. And the Apostle Paul, in just the 14 or so verses we're going to look at today, he uses a number of different words to describe his experience. He uses words like need, words like want, which it doesn't mean I want something, but it means lacking something, right? Uh, What is it? In Psalm 23, David said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In Old English, the word want was used as in lacking. So when he uses it here that we're going to look at today, he's not saying I want something, he's saying I'm, I'm lacking. He uses word like abased. I know how to be abased. We'll talk about what these words mean. He talks about affliction and suffering need. He talks about necessity. All the words that he uses today to describe his experience of being without at times. Now, if you're asking me on a purely practical human level, why did Paul write the book of Philippians? One of the reasons that he was writing a letter to his friends to share with them some of the experiences that he had gone through. And also, is a thank you letter. And I hope that you do that. I hope if if someone does something kind for you, that that you write a thank you note to them. 
It's kind of a, a lost art in these days, but there's something to, how many of you like receiving a handwritten thank you note? It's just something special about that, isn't it? You know, yeah, sure you could text it, sure you can email it, but don't. Write it. Write a personal thank you note. It will mean something to someone. And by the way, if you buy one of those really nice cards at Walgreens or something like that, that's great. But the person wants to see you write something. Sign your name to it. Write a personal note to them. Those are the ones that are going to be kept. The other ones are probably going to be thrown away, right? Think about that even for Christmas time. Don't just sign your name on a Christmas card. Write something. Write a scripture verse. Write something kind. This, way, this is all free, folks. I'm, I'm, I'm sharing this with you. This is not even going to charge you for this part. No, but Paul was writing Philippians as a letter to friends, and he was thanking them because they had given a gift to him to sustain him while he was in prison. But Paul was never one to let an opportunity go by. And so he was doing more than just thanking them for their gift. He's doing more than being polite. He took time to teach them some really important things about times of need. How do you respond when you're in need? And what he says to them, friends, he says to us today, how should you and I respond in times of need? That's what I want to talk to you about today. Look with me at Philippians 4 verse 10. But I rejoiced, there's one of our key words in Philippians, in the Lord greatly, but that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but you lacked opportunity. Not that, I res- not that I speak in respect of want or lack, again there's that word again, want means lack, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am, Therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Notwithstanding, you have well done that you did communicate or share with my affliction. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated or gave or shared with me as concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent once and again unto my necessity. Not because I desire a gift, But I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all, and abound, and am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. What I want to speak to you today about is this. God's word 
gives us guidance in how to respond in times of need. So I'm going to talk to you about that today, responding in times of need. And I think there are five words that we can find that in, you know, kind of explain this passage, these five words that help us to know how, should, how we should respond in times of need. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this passage of Scripture, for the book of Philippians. It is a treasure uh, to us. There's so many wonderful verses here that help us in our lives. And Lord, as we come to the end of this study through this book, we pray that once again you would speak to our hearts, uh, that you would teach us this truth from your word about need, about responding in times of need. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what, what guidance does God's word give us how we can respond in times of need. Let me give you those five words. The first word is the word peace. And by peace, I'm talking about contentment in every circumstance. You know, last week we looked at what Paul says about the peace of God that passeth all understanding, that can be our experience no matter the circumstances that we face. He says in chapter 4, verse 6, be worried, anxious, careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. So in other words, when your mind begins to be anxious or worried or burdened down with cares, you really have two options. You can carry those cares yourself and continue burdened down with them, or you can cast them on the Lord by prayer. Let your requests be made known unto God. Now, if you hold on to those cares and burdens, then your stress and anxiety is only going to build. But if you will let your request be made known unto God, that is, pray about what is burdening your heart, then the peace of God, which passes any way that human beings can explain, it's kind of inexplicable peace, will guard or keep our hearts by Christ Jesus. You know, Paul has talked a lot about peace in this book. He, in verse 10, uh, excuse me, uh, we looked at, excuse me, verse 9, he closed last week's passage out by saying, the God of peace shall be with you. He opens up this book of the Bible, Philippians chapter 1, verse 2, grace unto you and peace from God our Father. So peace kind of pervades over this entire book. And so when we talk about peace, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about wholeness. We're talking about well-being. We're talking about a tranquility of mind. Now, there's one... Bible teacher named Moises Silva, and he says it's an inner sense of contentment that's supplied by God. Think about that. An inner sense, inside sense of contentment that God supplies. Now, what makes this peace so remarkable is that it passes all human understanding. And what also makes it remarkable is that it can be experienced in any circumstances. Where's Paul writing this letter from? A palace? No, he's writing it in prison. And Paul says, I'm rejoicing in the Lord always, whether in a palace, whether in prison. And he goes on to say that this contentment that he experiences, it really is not dependent upon circumstances. Look at verse 11. I've learned in whatsoever state or condition or circumstance that I am therewith to be content. Now, do you know what the word content means? It means to be satisfied. It gives the idea of sufficiency, that, that, that I have enough. And Paul says, even when I'm, I'm technically lacking of the earthly things that I need, truly, I, I feel content. I'm satisfied. 
I, I feel as if and believe as if and live as if I really do have enough. And before you go too far with this, I don't think Paul's talking about the power of positive thinking here. I don't think he's trying to trick his mind, whereas I really am hungry, but I'm going to pretend like I'm not hungry. I think the idea of what he's saying here is that I really trust God so much that I believe in whatever condition God allows me to be in, I have enough. I have all that I need, and I am satisfied. Notice Paul says this is something he's learned. Contentment is learned. It's learned through experience. And he says he's learned contentment when times of humiliating scarcity, that's what the term abased means, or in whatever translation you may be using, it may say low or, or, or humbleness. It's the idea that when he is humiliated because he has such a scarcity, he says, I'm content. And he goes on to say, I'm content in times of plenty. Verse 12, he says, I know how to be abased, that is, humiliated with scarcity. I know how to abound, that is, when I have plenty, everywhere and in all things. Notice this next phrase. Don't miss this phrase. He says, I am instructed. It's a really powerful word here. It's the idea that you've been let into the secret. You know, we sang earlier, come behold the wondrous mystery. In the Bible, a mystery is something that you can't figure out on your own, that God has to initiate you into this mystery. He has to bring you into it. He has to help you to understand it or you couldn't on your own. And Paul is saying the kind of contentment and peace that I experience, God has let me into the secret. God has initiated me into this mystery. And we'll say more about what that secret is. But for now, he's saying, I, in every circumstance, know what it's like to be at peace. I know what it's like to be satisfied, no matter what my condition is. I hope that you've heard of a lady named Fanny Crosby. She wrote thousands of hymns. And if you've been in church any length of time, you have heard some of her songs. Songs like, All the Way My Savior Leads Me. Songs like, This Is Mine. Songs like, To God Be the Glory, Great Things He Had Done. Did you know that when she was an infant, Fanny Crosby became blind? And that she wrote her first poem when she was eight years old. This is what she wrote as an eight-year-old. Listen to these words. Oh, what happy soul am I. Although I cannot see, I'm resolved that in this world, contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. Here's a, a young girl who grow, grows up to be a faithful, godly Christian woman who wrote so many hymns that the churches still sing today. But she developed blindness as an infant. Yet she learned to be satisfied in God. She learned what it is to be at peace and content no matter the circumstances. You know, when the, the early days of the New Testament church, so we're talking about 2,000 years ago, there was an early church leader. And um, he was asked, he was known for his just remarkable contentment. And people were really amazed that he could be so content in all the circumstances around him. And so they ask him how he remained content in these circumstances. Listen to his answer. He says, it consists in nothing more than making a right use of my eyes. In whatever state I am, I first look, uh, I first of all look up to heaven 
and remember that my principal business here is to get there. Then I look down upon the earth and call to mind how small a place I shall occupy in it when I die and I'm buried. I then look around the world and observe what multitudes there are who are in many respects more unhappy than myself. Thus I learn where true happiness is placed, where all our cares must end and what little reason I have to complain. Friends, how should we think about this today? Because that was written 2,000 years ago. But what about us living in 2020? Can I ask you a question? Are you content with your current situation? Whether it be with your health, whether it be with your job, whether it be with your relationships, perhaps you are not married, but you want to be married, but you find yourself being dissatisfied with that, or maybe it is the the situation in your current marriage as it is, or the conditions that God has allowed for your life, are you content You see, do you believe that God really is sovereign? And when we say sovereign, that means in control. That everything, and when I say everything, I want you to underscore everything that we experience is permitted by God in His plan. In other words, it's a part of His plan. Something's floating around here. I think it's like a fuzzy or something. Can you believe that? I ought to like travel around doing like magic tricks. I caught that thing all of a sudden. Well, I did have it. We talk about God being sovereign. It's the fact that God is in perfect control. When my family went through such hard times financially, none of that was outside of God's plan for us. It was all a part of what God was doing. If you lose a loved one that you care for, if you lose a job, if the relationship that you put your hopes in breaks apart and the marriage doesn't happen or the relationship doesn't continue, friends, all of these things are part of God's plan. And do you and I believe that his plan really is good? That his plan really is best? You know, friends, we often think that we know better than God and that we know what would make us happier than God knows. I heard about a story that Adrian Rogers tells. It's really not more of a story than just kind of a a made-up analogy, but, but, but listen to it. It makes a powerful point. He said, once upon a time, there were two different tiers Tears that you cry, two tears that met along the river of life. So one tear said to the other tear, where did you come from? Oh, the second tear said, I am the tear of a girl who loved a man and lost him. And so that tear said, and where did you come from? The first tear, I'm the tear of a girl who found that man and married him, right? So sometimes people think that they really know what is going to make them happy. But God tells us he is the one that designed us and made us, and he is working out his plan. I think the best question to ask ourselves today as it relates to contentment and peace is, do we really believe that Christ is enough? That we'd be satisfied if all we really have is him? That's what Paul learned. I pray it's something that we will learn as well. So the first word is peace. The second word is the word power. Don't you love it when things start with the same letter? Maybe it's easier to remember. Power. When we talk about power, we're talking about being strengthened by Christ to handle hardship and also to handle abundance. Perhaps the most taken out of context verse in all the Bible, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. 
So how is Paul able to be content no matter the circumstances? Remember I talked about him being initiated into the secret. He he knows the mystery. He found the answer. What's the answer? The answer is this. The strength that Christ supplies to be content in every circumstance. That's the secret. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Now, this verse is frequently taken out of context. It's not about an athlete trying to make a touchdown. It's not about a student trying to make a hundred on their test. You know, I didn't study, but I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me, right? It's not about a shy guy who's trying to ask the pretty girl out. I'm nervous, but I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Friends, it's, it's not even about a, a life coach seeking to accomplish their success goals. I can do all things through Christ. I can be a successful business person. Friends, that's not what this verse is about. And I'm convinced if every time we took a verse out of context, if we could just hear it screaming for its life, we would want to put it right back where it belongs. You see, we've got to read it in its context. And Paul is writing this from a Roman prison. But he's not a prisoner to his circumstances. He says, I'm in the midst of a a horrible circumstance from a human perspective. But the secret is, is I truly am happy. I truly am satisfied. I truly am at peace. And the only explanation for that is that Christ gives me strength to rejoice even in the most miserable of human circumstances. So by Christ's strength, he's joyful, he's content, he's at peace in spite of his circumstances. Now what Philippians 4.13 does not mean is that when I'm going through a hard time, God is going to bring me out of that hard time so that I'm happy. It's not what it means. It means that in the midst of the hard time, he gives us strength to rejoice and to be content. You see, Paul doesn't find his contentment in material things, or in health, or in positive circumstances. So he doesn't sink in despair when he doesn't have those things. Because you see, if all of your eggs are in the basket of financial prosperity, of good relationship, nice job, nice house, well, when those things are taken from you, when the basket's overturned, your hopes sink in despair. But Paul's hopes are in Christ. So he could be just as happy with full of food as he could going a week without it. And the only thing that explains that is the power of Christ. I want you to see, though, that Paul says, and it makes sense to us that Paul would need strength to go through hard times, but notice he says both, both how to be humiliated with scarcity and also, I know, by God's strength, how to abound. I have Christ's strength to know how to live when I am full, when I have all that I need. This is an amazing thing. Paul says, Christ has given me strength to face hardship and abundance with the same joy and with the same contentment. Imagine that you're standing before a judge and that you've been accused of a crime that you really did not commit and you're not guilty And at this point, you're the only one who's speaking up on your defense. And imagine that you have other friends or other associates or other people that also know that you're not guilty, but none of them come to the courtroom. None of them stand up to speak on your behalf. You're all alone 
there by yourself. In other words, you've been deserted. Did you know that Paul experienced something just like that? He writes about it in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 17 and verse 18. And how that, that could have been such a crushing experience. But Paul reveals the secret for how he endured that situation without going into despair or, or bitterness. He says in, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 17 and 18, that the Lord stood with me, he says. I wasn't really alone. God was with me. And then he uses the same word that we just read in Philippians 4.13. He said, God stood with me and strengthened me to do what he has called me to do. And again, as I mentioned earlier, we can see easily why we would need strength and God's enablement to go through hard times. But do we recognize that we need God's strength just as much to go through times of prosperity? In fact, I think a really good case could be made that you and I need God's strength more when we're in good health, when our finances are good, when our families seem to be happy, when the job is well, when everything around us is going well. I think we need God's strength more in those times. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, that famous pastor, said that times of prosperity are often far more dangerous for Christians than times of adversity. He went on to say this, when we are full we forget God and we become satisfied with earth and we're content to do without heaven. So friend, do you know how to live in peace and contentment when life circumstances have brought you low? If you're struggling today with, to live joyfully when you feel empty or lacking or when you're experiencing affliction or distress, there is good news that Christ has all the power that you need to really bring you joy and to feel content and satisfied in the midst when everything around you seems to be falling apart. But I would say to you today that it's harder for us to live faithfully in times of prosperity when life is going well. Do you know how to abound? Because we tend to forget God when things are going well. We tend to set our affections on things of this earth. And I've often said that to people that have gone through hard times. And I think that was, in my ninth grade year and 10th grade year of high school, was really, as I look back over my, I'm almost 35, I'll be 35 next week actually. And as I look back over my 35 years, from my perspective, that year of ninth and 10th grade, end of my ninth grade year, beginning of my 10th grade year, was probably some of the most pivotal times in my life. It really was like, the, like life-defining moments took place then for me. It doesn't happen for everybody that earlier. Sometimes it's earlier, sometimes it's later. But for me, that was probably the pinnacle moment when life began to change for me. And I am convinced that God used the circumstance that my family went through to help kind of reorientate my entire life. And I've talked to people who have, and I often don't know the reason. In fact, most of the time, I don't know the reason why we go through the hard times that we go through. But I do believe this with all my heart, that often the hard times of life are really gifts of God's grace to us. Because if life was always smooth sailing for us, we would be so tempted to forget God and be satisfied with earth. But when the person that you cared about so much breaks up with you, when the job you put all your hopes in falls apart, when the loved one that you love so much passes away, Friends, God uses these things to help us to see that we're not made for this life alone. We're made for Him. 
and to set our affections on things above. And I would say to you today that it may be more important for you to look to Christ for His power if everything's going well so that you know how to handle success and comfort and ease and prosperity more than you may need power when everything is around you falling apart. So the third word I want you to see is the word partnership. Times of need, how do we respond? Well, peace, God gives us contentment in all circumstances. Power, He strengthens us to endure hardship and abundance. But thirdly, it's the word partnership. That we can materially and financially support gospel work. That's how we uh, are to respond in times of need. Remember, this is Paul giving this formal thank you and acknowledgement that he has received a gift from the Philippian church that they had sent to him by Epaphroditus. He says in verse 14, I have all and abound. I am full having received of Epaphroditus the things that you sent. So he's acknowledging that. And the Philippians, what they had done, they didn't just send him a care package, but really what they were doing was giving to him to sustain his ministry, to partner with him. This is what he means when he talks about back in chapter 1, verse 5, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. He's talked about the fact that they are in fellowship or sharing together in the gospel work. In fact, the Philippian church, according to Philippians 4, verse 16, um, excuse me, verse 15, he says that you were the only church at one point that were helping me and supporting me. Think about that. He says in verse 15, In the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving or receiving, but you only. And there were at least two occasions that they gave to Paul. Verse 17 tells, or 16 tells us, You sent once and again unto my necessity, or to meet my needs. And the word communicated in verse 14 and 15 literally means to partake with, to share with, to participate in. So Paul was in need and they had sacrificed to meet that need. They had not forgotten about him in prison and gave so that he could be sustained and continue his ministry. But you see, they were not only partners in Paul's work, but they were partners in the fruit that God was bringing about through Paul's ministry. Paul says in verse 17, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. In other words, as they're partnering in together, just by their financial and material gifts, Paul says the souls that are being saved, that's not just my reward, that's your reward. In other words, when we stand before Christ and He rewards us for our service, we are partners. I'm not the only one who's going to be receiving rewards. We are joint partners in this work. William Carey was a famous missionary to India, and he really became a gospel pioneer in the country of India. And he was wanting to be a missionary in a time when Christians and churches were not really supporting world missions. And there were not a lot of people who wanted to help him go. He and his a few friends founded what was called the Baptist Missionary Society. And he had one friend in particular who was a pastor in Britain at the time. His name was Andrew Fuller. Andrew Fuller, William Carey were good friends. And William Carey says, I'm going to go to India to preach the gospel. And he looks at 
Andrew Fuller, and says to him, will you help me? Will you be a part of helping me? And he uses these words to describe the relationship that they were going to have. He says, I'm going to go down into the pit. And he didn't mean that in a derogatory way towards India, but he meant that in a way that I'm going to a place that is a stronghold of Satan and darkness because the gospel is not there. I'm going down into the pit. Will you hold the rope? This is famous. In fact, many people have have used this story from times past to help people understand the, the work of partnering together in gospel ministry. But he says to Andrew Fuller, if you'll hold the rope, I will go down into the pit. And that's exactly what happened. William Carey went to India to preach the gospel, to pioneer new territory where the gospel had not been preached. And Andrew Fuller stayed behind in Britain, going around different places, sharing about the gospel work that William Carey was doing and asking people to help support this brother in Christ. And you know what the Philippians were for Paul? They were rope holders. Paul says, I'm going to the regions beyond where Christ has not been preached. And at one point, look right here for a second, friends. At one point, Paul says, you are the only people holding the rope. You are the only ones there helping to support my gospel work. Paul says, I'm going down to these dark places where the gospel is not known. And you Philippians, I praise God for you because you've been holding the rope. And he says, you've done well in supporting me. What about you? Do you support gospel work financially? With your money and with your gifts? Are you a partner in gospel work? You know, we could talk about a number of ways that we can partner with gospel work, but let me just give you two briefly. One is to financially partner and support missionaries, even missionaries like Candy and Nick Corlotta and their family that we prayed for earlier and watched a two-minute video for. You know, if you're not currently, personally, as an individual or as a family, supporting a specific missionary, let me encourage you to find at least one missionary or one missionary couple that you can support. Maybe $10 a month, $20 a month, You can have a little card that has their names on it and website and email, and you can pray for that. You can maybe put that card in your Bible or put it in the refrigerator, the place that we frequent the most, right? Wherever, you know, put it on that, wherever you want to put it, you'll see it by your bed. You can pray for that family. You can give to them. It's one of the ways that you can be a part of holding the rope and partnering with people. As a church, we seek to do that with a number of missionary families, including the Corlottas, that we give to them on a regular basis to hold the rope in support of them. Second way is by supporting, supporting our own local church here, by supporting the ministry of Living Hope so that the ministry of Living Hope can continue and sustain to your children, to your grandchildren, to your, your grandchildren's children if Jesus hasn't come back again. And that's my desire and prayer that I won't be the only pastor of this church. I hope to be the pastor of this church for another 30 years or more. But I hope that there's another pastor after me, 40 or 50 years down the road, who continues preaching the gospel. But that cannot happen if you and I don't give to support the work of the gospel. You know, there's a man named Andrew Scott. Andrew Scott is the president of Operation Mobilization, which is a missionary organization. 
And he said this recently, just, just a couple years ago. He says Americans have spent more money buying Halloween costumes for their pets than they do the amount they give to reach the unreached. Friends, I'm afraid he's true. I'm afraid he's accurate. I, I shudder to think if we were to look at the giving of all of God's people and to see what percentage they actually give to gospel ministry as compared to what they waste on things that truly don't matter. Friends, let me ask you to evaluate the percentage of your income that you give to the Lord's work. We've encouraged people that tithe is a great goal to shoot for, or even beyond that. That say you make 80000 a year. Could you trust God with 8000 of it? If you make 40000 a year, could you trust God with 4000 of it at least? You say, truth be known, I think the reason we struggle with giving so much is because we have a misunderstanding of the circumstances that we're in. We view ourselves as owners and not as managers. But the Bible says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and they that dwell therein. Do you know that you're not really an owner of anything? Your bank accounts, your homes, all of those things. You're a steward of those things. You're a manager of them. The real owner is going to call you into account one day with how you have used it. And I want to encourage you to use it well. Use it in that which will last. So Paul says, in the day we stand before the Lord and give an account, he wants them to experience fruit. That's what Jesus talked about when he says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven and not treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt. Friends, look here for just a second. I, I trust that on the final day, when you and when I stand before the Lord, when we give an account of all of our lives and what we've done for the Lord, I trust that we've not given more to our cell phone bill, or our pet food, our clothing, our vacations, even our eating out at restaurants. I trust that we've not given more to those things than we've given to the work of the gospel. I trust that we don't tip God and then just really invest in the things of this world. Now, it is true that we live in a different time than Paul lived in. And that we, it's, it's expensive to live. And, and if you have children, you, know, you want to help them go to college. And vehicles aren't free, are they? We know all of these things. But the truth is, friends, if we come to the end of it all, and we've, we've, we've spent so much on those things, and just very little given to the work of the Lord, I think we're going to regret so much. I think we're going to wish we could go back and have a cheaper car or been wiser with our spending so that we could give to what really matters, that which is going to last all throughout eternity. Partnership. The fourth word I want to look at is the word purpose. And by that I'm talking about seeking the good of others and the glory of God. You know, one of the things that I really admire about Paul is that his motives were pure here. And it's so hard for me oftentimes to have pure motives. But he says, look what he says in verse 17. He says, I really don't have an ulterior motive here. I am not writing this to you because I desire you to keep giving gifts to me. But my true desire in wanting you to give is for you. <laughs> now, now, I'm tempted to read that and think, that's not true. 
<laughs> I'm tempted to read that. It's almost like the parent who says to their child before they spank them, this hurts me a lot worse than it hurts you. And every kid says, yeah, right. But I think Paul really means what he's saying here. I think Paul really means by the fact that if you don't give to me, God's going to take care of me. I really don't need what you're going to give to me. But I want you to give because I want you to have fruit in this work. I want you to know what it is to participate in reaching people with the gospel. I want you to stand before the Lord and experience the joy of reward in Him. And then he goes on to say that his purpose is not only for them, not himself, but he says his purpose is the glory of God. Verse 18, he says, This that you've given to me is like a, an odor of sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. Now, when you read that, he didn't, they didn't send him perfume. <laughs> so you read that, what was the gift? This sweet smelling, I mean, they send him a, you know, a Bath and Body Works you know, box or something. Is that what he's getting here? Is it just like a you know, candle from Yankee Candle? I mean, what is this going on here? What are they giving to Paul? No, he, he's using some Old Testament terminology. He's saying that what you give to me is this acceptable sacrifice that's being offered to God. And it's like it's ascending up to God. And when he smells this sacrifice, it's pleasing. It's acceptable to him. I wish I had more time, but let me just really quickly say that, that Paul took great pains for them to understand that he's not thanking them because he's discontent and wants more. He's not writing to them because he's dependent upon their gift for joy. He doesn't want them to think, look, I was sad, but now that you've given to me, I'm happy. He's not writing to them to say, listen, um, he didn't want them to think he's unthankful because he is thankful, so he writes to tell them that. But most of all, he wants them to know, I'm not writing this to thank you because I want more from you. It's not like a, a guilt tactic. Hey, thanks for sending this. Looking forward to the next one, <laughs> you know. He's not trying to manipulate them. His purpose in all of this is their good and the pleasing of the Lord. You know, this is, again, this is Old Testament language. You know what the very first thing that Noah did when he got off the ark? When Noah got off the ark, it says he built an altar and he took some of the animals that were appropriate to sacrifice to the Lord and he sacrificed many of them on that altar. He burned them before the Lord as a sacrifice. And you know what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 8, verse 21? It says that, that the aroma of that sacrifice ascended up to God and he was pleased by it. He was accepted. It, he accepted it. But did you know that not every sacrifice that was made in the Old Testament was actually pleasing to God? In Leviticus chapter 26, verse 31, God says, I will not smell the savor of your sweet odors. Meaning the sacrifices you're giving to me, if they're not done for the glory of my name, if they're not done in obedience to me, if they're done drudgingly, if they're done just to get it over with because you don't want to feel guilty, he says, I'm not going to receive those sacrifices. So as we think about this idea, our primary motive in why we give is not to somehow gain God's favor. You know, when you listen to the prosperity gospel teachers, give money so that you get God on your side. 
And if you don't give, that's why you're getting sick. <laughs> if you don't give, that's why you're losing your job. And if you give, God's going to get on your side and we're going to send you this magic hanky that you can just wave over you and all your problems will go away. Friends, that's not why we give. We don't give so that God is now in our debt. We give for the good of others and for the glory of God. We give so that we'll experience that eternal reward that Paul spoke about here, that fruit abounding to your account. How is your account doing? How's your account doing? You say, ah, my, my 401k is not doing real good right now. Well, I'm not talking about that, although I hope that rebounds for you. I really do. But I'm talking about your spiritual account. I'm talking about what Jesus said in Matthew 6, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. How is that going for you? Are you hoarding it all down here? Or are you laying up as much as you can there? I wonder with your gifts and with your offerings, is God pleased by them? Is it like a sweet smelling fragrance to him? And let me tell you one of the ways we know it's a really sweet smelling savor to God is if there's any sacrifice involved. Because you know what a lot of us want to do, myself included, is we want to give, but we just don't want to give if it hurts. We want to give in such a way that we're not going to miss it. We want to give in such a way that it's easy and it's like, oh yeah, well, not going to miss that. Is there any sacrifice involved in your giving? Do you feel the rub because you're actually making some sacrifices? You remember the story in, in the Gospels where Jesus is in the temple with his disciples and he's watching as the people come in to give their gift in the offering. And he sees all these people who come in that have great wealth and they're pouring money in there. But they're giving out of their abundance. And they're not really giving in a way that's in any way sacrificial. But then this poor widow comes in. Just two mites, which is as poor as you can get. And she casts it into the offering. And Jesus said, this woman has put in more than everyone else. Because what she has given is out of her deep poverty. In other words, she's given sacrificially. That, I believe, friends, when we try to give with that kind of sacrifice, that is well-pleasing to the Lord. Now, I'm not saying we should do that in an irresponsible way. I'm not saying that we should just, you know, take everything that we have and just give it all away right away. No, we need to provide for our families. We need to care for our future. But we also need to look for ways that we can push aside things that don't really matter. Especially if they're keeping us from actually giving in somewhat of a sacrificial way. Let me give you the last point here. I told you five words. Peace, power, partnership, purpose. Finally, the word is promise. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Paul concludes this letter with a wonderful promise. And there's a lot here. He says, my God, with emphasis here. And the idea is the same God who met my need through you is the same one who will meet your need. And he uses the word supply, which means to make full. It carries the idea of filling the need where there is a lack. He'll supply your need. And then he says, according to 
your riches in glory, which really indicates the measure that corresponds with his glorious riches. Again, remember, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, right? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Out of his glorious riches, according to his glorious riches, he, as the owner of and possessor of everything, he'll meet our needs. And then he says, by Christ Jesus, always wanting them to know and remember that everything God does for us, he does by and through Jesus Christ. In other words, God doesn't just give to us, he gives to us in relationship with Jesus. It's only through Jesus that we can have this relationship with God where he meets our needs and provides all that we have. I mentioned to you about a famous missionary, William Carey. Let me talk to you for a second about Hudson Taylor. He became a missionary to China. He was also from Britain. And he told the story before he went to China, he was making plans and preparations to go to China as a missionary. And one day he, um, he was down to really the last bit of money that he had. He hadn't been paid for the week. And he met this poor man that would uh, and ask him to, um, for prayer. And this, this, this poor man said, my wife is desperately sick. Can you help us? And so Hudson Taylor went with this man to the house and he saw that they had nothing, that they really were poor and that his wife really was sick and that they needed the help. And so he started to pray for them, but he wasn't going to give what he had. He felt he couldn't. He was down to his last bit. But he started praying for them. And he said, while he started praying, God started convicting his conscience. He said, it was as if the Lord said in my conscience, do you mock me? Do you dare kneel down and call upon the Father with that half crown, that is that money that in your pocket? Well, when he finished that prayer, he reached in his pocket and he gave that last bit of money to this poor man and his wife. And it was enough for them to purchase food and medicine. And he returned home with empty pockets, but with a heart full of joy. And as it turned out, the very next day, Hudson Taylor said that he received an anonymous letter in the mail. It had money in it. And the money in that letter was four times what he had given away the night before. I think we find in here a wonderful promise. And if we give sacrificially, God is going to meet our needs. But we, again, this is another one of those verses that you pull out of context and it kicks and screams all the way down the road. A lot of people, uh, prosperity gospel preachers in particular, they want to use this kind of a verse, but we need to remember that the context of the verse. And the context of the verse is, is sacrificially giving. And they're giving in the midst of this sacrifice. It's not made to selfish people who hoard and are stingy. It's given to people who gave at great cost to themselves. And Paul says, but God's going to meet your need. Now, the prosperity gospel preachers tell us that if you give God a dollar, he's going to give you ten. If you give God a hundred, he's going to give you a thousand. If you give God your little car, he's going to give you a Rolls Royce. But they will not find that in the Bible. What is this about for us? Well, Philippians 4.19 is not a get-rich-quick scheme. It's not a, hey, you give to God a little, he's going to give to you a lot. But it is a promise. It's a promise that God will meet the needs of those who give to meet the needs of others. 
Now, all of us want to claim this promise. But as we close today, I want to ask you, can we all claim this promise? Because you see, I think I've known some people who had never really given in any kind of sacrificial way to the Lord's work, but when they experience times of crisis, then they want to dial up Philippians 4.19, right? Give me that promise, Lord. They're quick to want to claim these promises, but they don't want to live in the way that Paul talks about here in this passage. You know, I think a similar idea that might help you understand the concept, remember what Jesus taught us to pray? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I think a similar idea here that Paul is saying, as we seek to meet the needs of others and give generously and sacrificially to the Lord's work, we can trust that God is going to meet our needs. He will do that. So let me encourage you to depend upon that promise, to give sacrificially, And to trust that God is going to meet your need. He always does. Well, as I close today, when my family was in the midst of that difficult time of financial uncertainty, I'll never forget one day a family from our church pulling into our driveway and opening up the trunk and bringing full boxes of groceries for our family. We ended up needing to move, as I told you, and we didn't know where we were going to live. And there was a man in our church, his name is Carl. And he had just lost his mother. His mother had passed away, and her house had gone to him. And he was either going to sell it or rent it out. And he heard about our circumstance, and he told my dad that we could live there rent-free for as long as we needed to until we got back up on our feet. That all we needed to do was pay the utilities and the light bill and those things, but that he wasn't going to charge us any rent. We lived there for probably about a year and a half until we were back up on our feet and ended up moving. And as I went through all those experiences, it reminds me of a a wonderful hymn that says, God will take care of you through every day or all the way. He will take care of you. God will take care of you. I hope you believe that. Five words to how to respond in times of need. Peace, contentment in every circumstance. Power, he gives us strength to abound and to suffer. Partnership, we give to help the work of the gospel. Purpose, why do we do that? Not to get God in our debt, but we do it for the good of others and the glory of God. And this promise, when we give sacrificially, God will meet our needs. Let's bow for prayer. Let me ask you a couple questions as we close today. Are you in need? Maybe you find yourself in a situation where you're just without. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe your income has been affected by this uh, circumstance and pandemic around us. Maybe you find yourself just in a situation where you're really hurting. Today's scripture today, I hope you found encouragement in it. And I want to encourage you that you can experience comfort and contentment despite your need. That the wonderful, miraculous thing about the Christian experience is that we don't have to have good times to have peace and contentment. You know, the world can experience peace and contentment when everything's going well. The marvel of the Christian life is that we can have, like Paul's experience, contentment and peace in the midst of chaos. You can experience that today. 
And if you really are in need, I would love for you to reach out to me. And I'd love for our church to be able to help to meet your need. Second thing I want to ask you today is, you know, we need some people like Carl that I talked about. Maybe God has provided for your needs. Maybe he's done that so that you can help meet the needs of others. Are you generous? Are you giving in any kind of sacrificial way? Friend, I want to encourage you to give in a way that meets the needs of others and in which that sacrifice brings glory to God. And then the last thing I want to say is as we've talked about needs today, I don't want you to misunderstand what I've been saying. Because the greatest need that any person in this room or watching today has is the need to have Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There is no greater need than the need of forgiveness of our sin. The greatest need we have is the need of being released from the penalty and judgment of our sin. And that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. If you're watching today online or if you're here in this place and you've not trusted in Jesus Christ, I hope you understand that your greatest need is not money, it's not a spouse, it's not a better job, it's not any of those things that you might be tempted to fill in the blank with. The greatest need that you have is that you have the wrath of God against you because of your sin. The greatest need that you have is the fact that if you died today, you would spend eternity separate from Christ, bearing God's wrath for all eternity. The greatest need you have is to say, Lord, I am a sinner, guilty and condemned. I trust only in Jesus Christ, your Son, who died on the cross and who rose again from the dead. He alone is able to save me from the guilt of my sin. God, forgive my sin. Save me from judgment. I put my trust in Christ today. Oh, I hope you'll do that if you don't know him. And you'll experience what it is to have that greatest need met in Christ Jesus. Father, thank you for our time together today. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.